Welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and again, I'm thrilled to be recording live at Anesthesiology 2019. That's the ASA annual meeting here in Orlando, Florida, and it is an absolute pleasure to have with me Dr. Janine Wiener-Kronisch, who, as I'm sure everyone knows, is a professor of anesthesiology at Harvard Medical School and the chair of anesthesiology at Massachusetts General Hospital. I found out recently that we are both alums of both the UCSF School of Medicine and the residency program at UCSF, and so it is absolutely a pleasure to welcome her to the show to discuss what she'll be speaking on tomorrow when she gives the John Severinghouse Lecture, which is personalized PEEP. Dr. Wiener Kronisch, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chad. So let me start by asking you a little bit about yourself. You had an incredibly accomplished career already, and I'm sure much more to come. And so I know a lot of people out there would love to hear some advice and thoughts from you on how you got to where you are and what you would recommend for folks out there in anesthesiology who may be med students or residents and thinking, you know, one day I'd like to be the chair of a department or I'd like to give a named lecture at ASA. What would you recommend for them? Um, Well, I would say opportunity comes and maybe you need to be open to it. I actually started in pulmonology and wasn't finding great career opportunities in the Department of Medicine. And Dr. Miller came up to me and told me that if I would retrain in anesthesia, he would make sure I would succeed. And best decision I ever made was to retrain in anesthesia. And Dr. Miller was absolutely true to his statement. He really helped me all along. So I actually uh, donated to FAIR in his honor. Um, So you need someone who supports you. You need someone who mentors you. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I was giving a talk at MGH, and Dr. Zapol turned to me and said, I'm going to be stepping down. You should consider coming here. So again, opportunities show up, and you need to be open that, yeah, maybe this is a great opportunity for me. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. And I've been told, and I, I also think this holds true, that uh, often uh, sometimes opportunities arise and you're not sure exactly what to make of them. But if you're not sure, maybe default to yes, and they tend to work out or you can kind of figure them out. Yes. So you can s- at least think about them right. and look at the potential upside and downside. But having people who are supportive, I think, is key. Absolutely. Those mentors can, can make all the difference. Um, and that's Ron Miller, of course, that you're referring yes, to the long Dr. time. Dr. Miller and Dr. Zapol. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, that's fantastic. Thank you for that advice. I'm sure people really appreciate it. Let's turn to the topic that you'll be talking about tomorrow, and hopefully lots of people who uh, are here at the conference will be there at the lecture. But for those who can't make it, this will be a great chance for them to learn some as well. So let me start by asking you, there are a lot of new tools, and I know you'll be touching on this tomorrow, tools that allow us to understand how the lungs work. So tell me a little bit about what some of those new and exciting tools are and what they help us learn. Yeah, so I want to just start, though, with the history. Please. The reason I picked this topic is there are a lot of heroes who are anesthesiologists in this story of mechanical ventilation. And just to remind people how important these people were. So I always start with Bjorn Ibsen, And it's 1952, the polio epidemic in Copenhagen. Mm. And I would say what's essential about that story is Bjorn recognized during this incredible epidemic with 80% fatalities. People were just dying right and left of polio. And the head of the hospital believed it was due to renal failure Mm. because the only tool they had was bicarbonate in the blood. 
and it was really high. So they assumed it was kidney failure. And Bjorn Ibsen was invited. They were desperate. Everybody was dying. So they invited the anesthesiologist and said, what do you think? And he said, this is respiratory failure. Hmm. But to prove it, he worked with the laboratory head, Paul Astrup, who went and got a pH meter from radiometer and showed that these patients had pHs of 6.9. So the new tool there was pH. Okay. And we take it for granted now, but he saved. I mean, this is a story I just was in Sweden that's told all over Scandinavia. Mm. So he was an incredible hero. Yeah. And he actually marks the time of the start of ICUs and respiratory failure. He, tra- he performed tracheotomies mm. on all the patients. And medical students did hand ventilation for wow. more than 100,000 hours. Wow. Okay. It's a story that we don't often talk about and yeah. should. Never heard it. He saved – the mortality went down between 30 and 40 percent. Wow. So unbelievable. 50 years later, they had a celebration in his honor and patients came up to him and kissed him hmm. for saving their lives. Amazing. So that's sort of the beginning of mechanical ventilation. Um, soon, mechanical ventilators were created because of that episode And then the next sort of historical viewpoint I take is 1957 when Severinghaus and Clark created the oxygen electrode. Mm -hmm. So we take for granted that we can do blood gases, but actually they weren't available till the late 50s. And then what was noted was that when we did anesthesia, when we performed it for any duration, we saw oxygen levels fall. But we didn't know why. So... The tool, the oxygen electrode, allowed us to identify a problem, but the hypothesis was that it was due to atelectasis, Mm. but we actually couldn't prove that until the 80s. Okay. Okay? And so it's 1985 when, again, the Swedes show they induced patients in the new CT scans in Mm. 1985 and showed that atelectasis occurred in 90% of the patients. Mm. 90% of our patients have atelectasis. First, you're lying your patient down, which decreases lung size right. okay, and lung volume. And then when you induce them, and it doesn't matter whether you paralyze them, whether they spontaneously breathe, atelectasis occurs in 90% of our population. And it's in a variable amount. And that was all shown by the new tool, the CT scan. Mm-hmm. Okay? There are other problems that are occurring, including uh, airway closure. And I would say this is just beginning to be appreciated. Um, So I'm going to digress for one second. Sure. In that new studies are showing that when you're doing CPR, if you don't apply PEEP, the airway closure will absolutely prevent you from ventilating patients Mm. during CPR. So you have to apply PEEP if there's airway closure. And so the appreciation of how often that occurs when we're doing anesthesia is difficult because the tools are just being created to look at that. But I would say what is recognized is older patients, and by older, anyone over 45, sadly, seems to have more airway closure. Anyone younger than 20 seems to have airway Hmm. closure. So I would say... It's a real problem yeah. for us. Quite a broad but, population. Yes, yeah. broad population. And anyone who's large. So obesity, that's just been published this year, that they may have an incredible amount of their lung closed off by airway closure. Hmm. So 
yet a new problem that we're going to be faced with that new tools are going to help us discern. And the, where is this airway closure? Is it lower airways? Yeah, probably, but okay. it depends. So I would say the larger concept is we believe that our lungs are like balloons, mm-hmm. but they're not. They're Instead of one large balloon that we're inflating, we may have a series of smaller balloons connected to a larger balloon. Mm. And how often you're overexpanding that one unit and not even inflating the smaller units is the way to think about it. Interesting. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to overinflate the lung. Right. So much so that new studies have shown that it actually affects your immune system. Mm. Your immune cells respond to strain when you strain the lung. So I think that we're on the cusp of really seeing how our lung is integrated in the rest of our body and how we need to protect the lung yeah. and really ventilate it carefully. Yeah, well, that's exciting. So lots of, new, lots of new potential information coming out. That is correct. And so the tools I want to emphasize, besides the story of our heroes in anesthesia, are that there's new PET scans that can look at airway closure as well as inflammation in the lung. We have MRIs with hyperpolarized gases that give us insight into this as well. But bedside tools, we have electrical impedance tomography and ultrasound. Uh And Tomorrow I'm going to emphasize electrical impedance tomography because it's a tool that's available at my institution. It's also now FDA approved. And I think it it's really an easier tool to appreciate. Ultrasound takes a lot of skill, mm-hmm. but it is accessible, and a lot of my colleagues in intensive care use it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to degrade it. I think right. it deserves its own talk. Sure. But electrical impedance tomography actually allows you to see where you're over-distending the lung and where you've got atelectasis. So you can adjust your PEEP so that you minimally over-distend the lung, or not at all, and you have minimal atelectasis. So if you will, it's the ultimate protection for the upper part of your lung. Very interesting. And how does that work? Is it um, something you put on the patient's chest that then gives you a readout? Right. So you put these electrodes around the chest, on the upper part of the chest, and what's important about that is that's the most vulnerable part of the lung for overdistension. Okay. And so then it's giving you does it is it a picture? That, yes. Okay. There's an algorithm that I will be showing that shows you on the left side overdistension and on the right side atelectasis. And what you do is you do a recruitment maneuver and then a decremental PEEP trial and you find the PEEP where there's the least amount of overdistension and the least amount of atelectasis. Very cool. And that's personalized PEEP and, if you will, lung protection. Yeah, both. That's great. Okay. Um, So lots of exciting new tools, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about them both in your talk tomorrow and uh, as more work is done with them. Let's turn to the personalized part of this because I know personalized medicine, uh, personalized care is uh, something we're focusing on in many ways in medicine. So tell me a little bit about uh, what does that mean to us in this context and why is it important? Yeah, so let me just say the the National Academy of Medicine has just come out with a statement that the way we're doing clinical trials may be – Incorrect in that you're putting a lot of patients together that are very heterogeneous and you find no improvement in care. And that's because the benefits are just meeting the harm in that population. And so a new paradigm to think about is that maybe you want to look for positive results and then use that population and find what's the best therapy for that particular group. And so it's 
looking at oncology as an example, that you don't want to give everyone a chemotherapy where you know it's not going to work. Right. And yet that's what we're doing typically with PEEP and other things in mechanical ventilation. Right. Rather, you want to find the positive results and then go after that population and find out who are the responders and who are harmed by this. Right. And that's so interesting, right? Because so, so what we mean is there may be – you do a trial and there could be a subset of people in that trial who are having incredible benefit from the intervention right. and an equal number who are having a harm and it's going to look like nothing happened. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I would say that's exactly what we've been doing and it's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. So we would – so what you're suggesting, which seems really interesting, is we would find the people who, who we think it's helping and then find a bunch more people like them and try to figure out is it helpful to them. Yes. And I would say – there are populations where we suspect this is really, really important. For instance, patients who are large, mm-hmm. who have very small lung volumes to start with, right. you would suspect that they're going to have a lot of airway closure and a lot of atelectasis. Right. So they're really going to need us to look at how we're ventilating because we may be harming them and underventilating them or overventilating them. Right. And the trouble is we look at things like BMI. But there's incredible variability. Just because your BMI is over 40 doesn't mean you're going to respond in this fashion. Right. And I think I'm going to convince, hopefully, a number of people that with these new tools and data, you can personalize the treatment of this very vulnerable group of patients. Very interesting and exciting. Um, so, all right. So we, we – want to individualize our care as much as we can in general. We want to individualize our, our studies so that yes. we can figure out who will benefit from this individualized care. Let's talk about PEEP itself. So uh, just in case, there, we, we'll start very basic. Tell me, what is PEEP? Yeah, so I will say anesthesiologists, again, are the heroes of this story. Um, the story of uh, ARDS comes about in 1967. And they actually had to take a ventilator from the OR, okay, to get PEEP. PEEP used to have the expiratory limb underwater. Hmm. I mean, uh, even that predates me. Uh, <laughs> but so PEEP was utilized by anesthesiologists because they recognized this hypoxia during surgery. Yeah. And they wanted to fix it. And they fixed it by using large tidal volumes and PEEP. Right. Um, so PEEP is positive end expiratory pressure. The trouble is it's always been sort of formulaic, five. I right. mean, that's as if it came down from the heavens. Right, right. Um, I would say we don't we, – we're now just starting to realize we need to individualize and that individual variation is very high. Even in normal patients, quote, unquote, the range for normal patients goes anywhere from two – to 14, even in surgeries that don't hurt the lung, quote-unquote. So there's incredible variability, and we'll discuss that tomorrow. So how do you make it so that you're not hurting patients and you're helping patients? And some of it is to really dig deeper and look at the physiology. Right. And I would just say that sets us apart. That's when... I, I don't know if you heard um, the Surgeon General's talk. Mm-hmm. That's what really gives us longevity in the field, is being interested in how to make this a much more precise field. To be the experts in this area, I think, gives you incredible longevity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, the idea of I mean, I, anybody can 
plug a ventilator into a into an ET tube, but right. to really be able to tailor that to the patient and do the right thing for the individual takes a lot more skill. Yes. And so that's my hope, to encourage people that this is well within their grasp. The new tools make it that you can see what's good for the patient, right. what's the least harmful, most beneficial treatment with PEEP. And it's the beginning of looking at the lung as a much more complex organ and integrated into the, you know, taking care of the whole patient. Right. So let me ask you a few specifics. Is there ever a time when a patient in the operating room should be on zero PEEP? I doubt it. Um, There's a lot of data from animals that zero peep allows airway closure at the end of expiration, and so that's a problem. Then you have to reopen those airways. Yeah, that's what I was taught and certainly what I practice as well. So as you said, I think the vast majority of people, either the ventilator defaults to five a peep or whether it does or not, people set five a peep. I think a big problem is ventilators that default to zero peep because sometimes it just gets left by accident. But Five is very, very common. Are there, uh, I'm sure you're going to talk tomorrow about uh, like uh, electrical uh, impedance uh, tomography, ways to actually adjust this in real time. Um, That seems like something that would be very doable in the ICU, depending on the surgery, maybe not as much in the operating room. Obviously, if they're operating on the chest, you probably can't put these on the chest. So in the operating room, are there general guidelines you give, for example, in a laparoscopic case? Do you recommend Mm. people do a little more than five? Uh, Yeah, no, in laparoscopic laparoscopic cases, I think you really need to use this because it turns out, and I'll quote a new study, there's incredible atelectasis. When we're insufflating the abdomen, we really cause the lung to deflate, and we need to be aware of that. Um, Even even in bariatric surgery where patients are in reverse Trendelenburg, there's a lot of atelectasis. Partly because of what we're doing and insufflating the abdomen and partly because of the patient population. Right. And then if you add a laparoscopic case where they're in steep Trendelenburg. Oh, my God. And that's the piece de resistance of my talk, (laughs) that it's really difficult to protect the lungs in those situations. Whoever invented that operation didn't like lungs. Yeah, right. Um, So I'd say we really need to use extra tools. EIT is the tool for the upper lung. Okay. You can use... um, an esophageal manometry for yep. the lower part of the lung to make sure that you don't have a lot of atelectasis. Yep. And we use them both when we're doing robotic surgery in Trendelenburg. Right. And uh, listeners will know that we recently did a um, episode with Dr. Vidal Mello, who I know you know well, um, and we talked about uh, transpulmonary pressure and using potentially using esophageal uh, balloons to measure that um, because I think another thing that happens is you may look at your peak pressure in a patient who's in steep Trendelenburg with a la- an insufflated abdomen and see that it's high and think, oh, I, I can't do this. I have to turn the peep down because my peak pressure is too high, right? right, which is wrong. It's incorrect. <laughs> right. Because uh, your lungs, your alveoli are not seeing what you think they're seeing. That's correct. So I think getting used to this, and I think we need to offer courses on this because sadly we are facing an increased size of population where this is really going to be difficult for us. The challenge to put someone who's really heavy, who's starting off with really small lung volumes to start with, it's, it's key that we know what we're doing. And do you ever uh, find or, or uh, would you recommend a discussion? I mean, are there patients who you might, based on any kind of tool testing you might do preoperatively or just based on their overall picture where you might say to the surgeon who is planning to do a case laparoscopically that this patient is not a good candidate? Well, I think 
what I'd say it's not a good candidate if you're just going to guess, you know, five of P. Right, right. <laughs> Weird. I'm getting an electrical impedance uh, tomography for the operating room. Okay. I think we need the ICU and the operating room are connected. Yeah. Okay. I see that more and more and more. Um, and we need to take the tools that we're using in the ICU to the OR and vice versa. I, it does not add that much time and it adds so much more safety. Yeah. That's the discussion that, okay, we're going to do this patient, but we're going to take care of their lungs and everything else. Right. And so you might have a patient who you attempt, you start, but by you're actually measuring the uh, collapse, the atelectasis and the overdistension in real time. And you might at that point say to the surgeon, you know what, this doesn't look good. And I've tried, but I can't with my well, peep. I'm going to show tomorrow that we were presented with a patient who had actually been rejected by several hospitals. Okay. And we got her successfully through the operation by knowing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I wouldn't do it as without knowing about EIT and, and esophageal manometry. Yep. But if you have experts in those areas, then you can take most patients through this. Is there going to be a patient who I wouldn't do it? Well, so far we haven't met that patient. Okay, but they might exist. But they might exist. Yeah. But I think I wouldn't do it without having the expertise. Okay. And that expertise is available. Yeah. We are going to, we are one of the few centers that are using EIT, but we're going to try and set up courses. Great. I think this is something that, again, sets us apart from our colleagues. Yeah. And we have now what's called a lung rescue team mm. that actually goes throughout the hospital. So for morbidly obese patients who others, neurologists, intensivists of, you know, other Backgrounds. They right. call on us. Yeah. They call on anesthesiologists who know how to use these tools. That's great. And so with someone like the patient you described, uh, the way you get that patient through is, uh, tell me if I'm right, is because you're, measure, you're using these tools, you're able to optimize your ventilation in a way that you, for maybe this isn't exactly the right word, but you kind of find the one perfect ventilation strategy that will get that patient through, whereas a, a, a very you know, small, healthy uh, person may not need to be exactly perfect. But this patient, if they're going to make it, does need it. And the only that, way to do that is to use these tools. That's exactly right. So I would say we get by with healthy patients, right. but we're not going to get by with these other patients. Right, right. And the goal is to ultimately you know, optimize every patient. Right. So much like a patient with critical aortic stenosis or severe pulmonary hypertension who, you know, we can't just be within a general realm on the blood pressure, right? We have to, we have to be very, very careful and very, very precise. Or a patient with a, an intracranial bleed, we cannot, you know, have wide swings in blood pressure, whereas a healthy young patient, we can afford to have swings in the blood pressure. So similarly, this is looking at the lung much like we look at the heart. Exactly. Well, this is fascinating. Anything else on this topic? I know, well, I'm sure there'll be much more tomorrow, and that's exciting. Um, but anything else you want to mention before we uh, move on here? No, just that, again, um, I've spent most of my career in the ICU, but we are connected, the OR and the ICU. Uh, Bjorn Ibsen, going back again to the polio, he's we date back ICUs to his intervention. Mm. And I would say there have been incredible anesthesiologists in, who are intensivists as well as OR anesthesiologists. So just more appreciation that we need to look at each other's work and you know, utilize each other's work. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. 
Thank you so much. So now let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Uh, anything that you would recommend to the audience that's not related to this topic, maybe a book or a podcast or a movie or a, anything you've, you've uh, done or experienced recently that you would recommend people check out? Well, I think they should check out the Surgeon General's talk. I found that really inspirational. Absolutely. He gave a great speech this morning. Yeah. I mean, I see our role as much more than, you know, just anesthesiologists in the OR. Yeah. I think we're very influential in the hospital. And I see our roles as master physiologists as something that we can go way beyond. Hopefully, we can take it to home. Right. Where we could look at patients and monitor patients remotely, make sure that they are ready for surgery, but also that they thrive after surgery. And that's what I'm going to be doing after um, I transition out of being chair. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that recommendation. I will uh, recommend an app that uh, someone introduced to me recently. It's called Headspace. It is a meditation app that you can get for sure on the iPhone. I assume you can get it also on uh, Android phones. And I'll say I had never meditated in my life, though many great friends and mentors have recommended it. Um, And I know it's certainly a a uh, well-regarded practice and has been for thousands of years. Um, But I recently got the app and started it. Uh, A little skeptical when I I started it, but I actually can't tell you. It has – I can't recommend it highly enough. Headspace, uh, and there are many apps out there, and I'm sure they're good too, and I'm not receiving any money from Headspace at all. But I will say that the nice thing about it is that you can do three-minute sessions. So if all you have is three minutes in your day, uh, which is often the case, you can do a three-minute meditation, and you've done something, and you're starting to train your mind. So I'm very early in the process, but I like the app. Uh, You can do it free, I think, for at least two or maybe even two weeks or a month um, to check it out. So that is my recommendation, Headspace app or just meditation in general. I think it's a really nice addition to, to my life, and I bet people would find that to be true as well. Okay. Well, Dr. Wiener Cronish, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Please, thank you. Been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. All right, that was fantastic. Really wonderful to have Dr. Wiener Cronish uh, come on the show. And I certainly learned a lot. I had never heard that story about um, the Scandinavian uh, Dr. Ibsen, but wow, what an interesting uh, piece of our history. So if you want to join in the conversation, please go to the website, acrac.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from whatever you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Follow at ACRAC Podcast or at Jay Wolpaw or both. And of course, if you have random recommendations of your own, tweet them to us. Again, at ACRAC Podcast or at Jay Wolpaw, and we will include them on the air. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. I didn't mention the Facebook group, but you can also join that. It's the ACRAC Facebook group where you can also take part in the conversation. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Thank you, as always, to our fantastic intern, Kimia Cash Cooley, and, of course, also to Brian Park for making the outline for some of the episodes. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. Live from ASA for the last time this year, but stay tuned for next year. We are the ACRAG Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
For Dr. Wiener Cronish and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.